0: Hello, and welcome to A Health policy.
1: Even when we look at health outcomes, right, they're predictable in the sense that black people will have worse health outcomes than whites. And so this is predictable. And then at a point, it's the question is, what are we going to do about it? I'm your
0: host, Alan Weil. The killing of George Floyd led to protests that stretched across the country. Long simmering racial tensions in the U.S. came to the fore. The response was very public, but behind those public acts were intense private feelings, feelings that emerged from experiences of racism, systemic and personal, that many people kept submerged just to get through each day. Today, I'm speaking with Brooke Cunningham, a general internist, sociologist, and assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Cunningham wrote a Narrative Matters essay that appeared in the November 2020 edition of Health Affairs, describing her own reaction and response to Floyd's murder. We'll discuss how she came to write this essay, what she hopes listeners and readers will take from her writing, and after a brief interview, she'll read her essay in full. Dr. Cunningham, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Weil, for having me. I'm happy to talk about the essay, happy to be here
0: it's great to have you with us. And uh, let's just jump right in. What inspired you to write this essay?
1: Literally, I started writing the night of May 26th, so maybe the morning of the 27th, because I because I couldn't sleep. I think we all have the experience in one way or another of trying to fall asleep at night and, and something is keeping you up. You're worried maybe something in your family, maybe your health, maybe something on the job, and you can't rest. You're, you're, you're unsettled. And that night I was surely unsettled. Clearly watching Derek Shaven with his knee on George Floyd's neck was unsettling for many of us to say the least. Unsettling doesn't even fully capture it. It was horrifying. And that night I was unsettled. Again, police had killed an armed man in my community, right? This is not the first instance locally or or nationally, and I couldn't sleep.
0: You know, writing has two aspects to it. One is the unburdening of what's inside you. As you say, you can't sleep. But it's also public. It's saying, as I write these words, I might share them with someone It's not just running through your head. So as you were writing, were you thinking, this is just for me to go to sleep? Or were you thinking other people need to see these words?
1: So I think it it did relatively quickly transition over. My recollection of the process is that it started with that second section on witnessing. I'm pretty sure that I started with that line in the essay, when will they stop killing us. I'm pretty sure that's the first line that I wrote on the paper. But, you know, it took me more than that night and more than that week. It actually was um a challenging essay for me to write in part because I did want to share it. And I'm very pleased that It has found an outlet in health affairs. I think when I imagine the health affairs audience, I imagine an audience that is engaged. I imagine an audience that is knowledgeable, that that knows the data, but I am not sure that the audience knows the pain.
0: Right. So this goes from being something you feel the need to do to a story that you hope will educate others and uh, enlighten them. And as you say, pain, make them not just think, but feel. That's a different kind of essay, isn't it?
1: It is, it is. And I think, you know, it's unfortunately the pain of watching black people killed on dash cam is so recurrent. And I don't know how other people process that pain. I know that it is not only Black people who experience that pain, but we probably experience it most intensely. And it's chronic. And so the thing about living while Black in America is, you know, I'm always a Black woman, right? no matter where i go, right? i i am racialized and so i have racialized experiences. and it could be an offhand comment, you know, at work, it can be an interaction on the playground with my daughter, it can be in the store or on the, or on the street and some of it is very predictable. Some of it is very predictable. Even when we look at health outcomes, right, they're predictable in the sense that Black people will have worse health outcomes than whites. And so this is predictable. And then at a point, the question is what are we going to do about it, right? The police killing unarmed Black people, unfortunately, is predictable. And so we have to get a point to what are we going to do about it? And so sharing the essay is hopefully part of the process for people to take them from a cognitive intellectualizing to bring it home even more, what it means for black men and women in all of their roles as, as physicians, as researchers, as mothers, as partners, as lovers, as family members, And what is wonderful about the black community and what is resilient about the community over time, but also what the realities and specific concerns are that we carry and are constantly mindful of or and at risk of.
0: So part of what I'm hearing is you want to make sure that those who aren't experiencing what you're experiencing every day don't just see the events and walk away. Because those who are not racialized Black can see something like this, and then the next day they go on with their life. There's no reminder the next day of what happened yesterday, as there is for you. The the essay is to make this something you don't just look away from when you're done with it. Am I getting that about right?
1: You are getting that right. I mean, I don't know if this is accurate, if Black pain and suffering has become the background noise, right? On, on loop in the background of American life. And so people can continue to sort of move on with their lives with the loop playing in the background, or they can stop, you know, in a coffee house when you're working, you hear that music in the background. Sometimes you, you stop and you look up and you listen for a moment and and something happens. And so this is to disrupt, I hope the essay serves, is disruptive in the sense of recognizing how normative black pain has been. And pushing right towards the end, pushing the question of, And what are we going to do about it?
0: I'm thinking about uh, the decision to write something for the public. I know when I write, even about something not very personal, I have a lot of anxiety about how it will be received. I want every word to be right. I want every phrase to be right. I have in my mind that people are gonna read every paragraph probably a lot more closely than they do as they're in their busy day. Were there things you worried about as you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard?
1: Hmm. I think that's interesting. I think um, this essay is very meaningful to me personally, um, in part because it is such a sharing of myself. Um, The people who work most closely to me know that my mode is a, very transparent, forthcoming self, even when I give lectures to medical students or or to other audiences, I value and really would find it difficult to do something other than be my authentic self. In my sort of publication world, I have tended to be more constrained. And so for me, this is actually... Very liberating to decide to speak as Brooke speaks and use and use the language that I use with people who are close to me, which, you know, people talk about how black people code switch. and And here you see reference in the essay to things that I you know, I've taken from popular culture, right? n w a language like, Am I ready to turn up? That's from the culture. And you also see that other side of me, right, which is this health equity, health disparities researcher who knows what the data shows. And I feel most actualized when I am able to bring both pieces of myself into my writing. So, I, so this piece is the first public piece, really, well, the first or the second, actually, uh, public piece in which I have um, been able to do that. And as I say that, it also makes me think about our healthcare organizations, our workplaces, in which what many people of color are seeking to do is to bring their full self to the table, to bring their full self into dialogue, to bring their full self into the room, without, and knowing that there will be space for their viewpoint, even if it diverges from others, and that that viewpoint will be respected.
0: And this gives you an opportunity to integrate the drier, more systematic approach that you take probably in your academic writing and your, and a more artistic and creative and Uh, That's part of the magic here. Um, I am curious as if you were to give some advice to someone else about making the leap from feelings and these experiences to writing, uh, what advice would you give them?
1: It's funny because it has been hard for me in many ways to make that leap. So it's it's hard to be the advice giver, but I will say that I recognize that for me, something has been missing along my professional trajectory. And so I am making the leap now for me as well as for the readers, but as much for me as the readers. And so to the extent that in everyday work, something is missing I would encourage people to sooner rather than later figure out how to fill that in for themselves, right? We get caught up in the expectations and the requirements set by others. And, and that is stifling and can lead to burnout and for our own sort of well being. And I really do mean this. For my well-being, I recognize how important it is for me to write more in this vein. And so I would encourage people for their own self-care, whatever it may be, to the extent that they can take hold of opportunities. Sometimes it requires overcoming some fears or insecurities, but take hold of those things for yourself. And... I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, we're about to have the pleasure of listening to you read the full Narrative Matters essay. Uh, Before we do that, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do that, I just want to say, Brooke, thank you for writing this and sharing this part of yourself and uh, being available to have this conversation with me. I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I feel like I have gotten to know you a little, which is part of the pleasure of reading something that uh, comes from the heart and the soul.
1: Thank you, Alan.
0: Well, we'll now take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Innovative Online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at SF edu forward slash hpl
1: health affairs may be the leading health policy journal but did you know we also send a daily newsletter sign up for health affairs today to catch our daily roundup of news analysis and commentary topics range from designing value-based payment systems to the latest on covid19 and it's free Head to www.healthaffairs.org and click newsletter sign up in the menu to join the premier health policy community.
0: Welcome back. We're now going to hear Dr. Brooke Cunningham read her Narrative Matters essay entitled This Too is What Racism Feels Like.
1: My name is Brooke Cunningham, and I'm a general internist, a sociologist, and an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. In this essay, written after the killing of George Floyd, I reflect on how the health effects of racism become embodied for myself and other Black Americans. It was 9 a.m. on May 26, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I logged into my first Zoom meeting of the day, a gathering of my community advisory board. I opened the meeting, as I typically do, with check-ins, particularly important during a pandemic. I mentioned some upsides of staying at home, probably in an effort to mitigate what came next. I shared that my cousin, a nurse who worked in a New Jersey nursing home, had recently died from coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. His employer had failed to provide him with sufficient personal protective equipment. I felt the tears well up in my eyes, but quickly composed myself, relieved that we were still in the first few minutes of the call. People were still signing on, so only a few caught a glimpse of my emotion. One or two others gave their intros and updates, and then another joined. She explained that she was late joining the call because she had been on the phone with her distressed son. No worries. Family first. Totally understandable. She continued, I am angry this morning. The police killed another unarmed black man. My mind swirled. I had not heard the news. I often listened to NPR in the mornings, but I had not done so that day. The woman's words began to blur together after she said, the police killed another. I felt like I'd been struck with a body blow for which I had not braced. Like the punch that leaves a boxer dazed and teetering on his feet. I needed a moment, but I did not say that to the group. Physicians learn early to compartmentalize. Displaying emotion at work can be a liability, particularly in biomedicine, especially as a Black woman, and especially as a researcher. So I tried to press on to speak with the controlled language and self-presentation that is normative, even when it's off the mark. My community advisory board meets only every month or so, and we had items to attend to on the agenda. I briefly expressed my anger and sadness and I mentioned the obvious tie to our work on racism as a health risk factor. While that was accurate, I immediately knew that it did not make anyone feel the slightest bit better. I found no solace in it myself, and perhaps that was what cracked the veneer. The tears came full on this time. I covered my eyes with my hands to prevent the tears from falling, pursed my lips tight to hold in what would have been a scream if I were alone, and took a deep breath as I let the moment set in, instead of pushing it away. And the community advisory board, which is predominantly black, did what it always does. It shored me up. Black board members unapologetically expressed their anger and frustration, not only with the police, but with business, and in this case, research as usual. As the meeting ended, I realized that for other board members, the conversation may have been as up close to Black pain as they had ever been. At 11 a.m., our meeting ended. I paused before I opened my search engine. The board's love and support had helped me regain my footing, but as I thought about watching the video recorded by a Black teenager who bore witness, all I felt was dread. At that point, I did not know the details. I did not know George Floyd's name nor how he died. I just knew the police killed him. When will they stop killing us, I asked myself, fully knowing no answer would be forthcoming. Another question followed, am I ready to turn up? It was actually two questions in one. First, I was trying to figure out if I could handle witnessing a black man being murdered again. The question wasn't whether I would watch, but whether I should watch right then, knowing the potentially damaging physical and psychological effects of witnessing. Was I ready to watch the police kill a stranger who was still family? Witnessing is important because the police often do not tell the truth, and it's harder to be lied to if you have seen murder with your own eyes. Witnessing is important because even a masterful storyteller might fail to fully capture the horror. Witnessing is important because to bear witness is to honor Mr. Floyd's life. For the people on the scene, witnessing is an attempt to protect, because maybe this time the police will stop when they see us watching. Witnessing is holding Mr. Floyd as we would a loved one on their deathbed to let them know that they are not alone. Just thinking about watching the video, I could feel my chest tighten. My pulse probably quickened. I know that I began breathing deeper and more slowly to get rid of my nervous energy and in an attempt to counter my activated sympathetic nervous system. I knew that when I watched, I would feel a threat to self, knowing that I and my loved ones, my extended self, were always also at risk. Of course, I would not go into full fight or flight. The threat of police violence was real, but not immediate. I was in my apartment after all. But so was Brianna Taylor. Black people have talked about race-related stress and its effects on the body for decades. We know that microaggressions, microassaults and frustrating interactions with white-controlled institutions can get your pressure up and lead to racial battle fatigue. Even anticipating exposure to racism is associated with hypertension, obesity, and delaying care in order to avoid experiencing discrimination. Newer research on vicarious racism, learning about or witnessing others experience anti-Black racism, such as via dash cam or cell phone videos, finds this form of racism to be harmful to your health as well. Academics often call exposure to racism race-based trauma or race-related stress and refer to the body's pathophysiological responses to that chronic toxic stress as weathering or racism becoming embodied. Acute activation of the stress response can save your life, but chronic activation contributes to allostatic load, that is wear and tear, which leads to diabetes, hypertension, depression, dementia, and other adverse health conditions. Fully aware of the potential consequences, I watched the video. I cried hard, and I did scream. I wanted to break something. The question, am I ready to turn up, now took on its second meaning. What was I ready to do? My attention turned briefly to Martin, then quickly pivoted to Malcolm, and then to NWA. Their words and images came forth from memory, colliding as I struggled to figure out what I could do and who I should be in this moment. I finished work because like most of us who still have jobs, I had to work. I've seen one YouTube post by the internet personality Evelyn Nguji about calling in Black to work, sickened from the latest news of yet another police killing of an unarmed Black person. But that was not an option I had. There has been a good amount of talk about resiliency and ways to work productively while coping with the uncertainties of the COVID 19 pandemic. In contrast, few have addressed how unreasonable it is to expect Black people to show up ready to work after repeatedly witnessing their own death. The response from managers and organizational leaders to police brutality varies. So often, the response is too late, too measured, too neutral and as such, too familiar. I remember Philando Castile. He was killed on Wednesday, July 6, 2016, by a St. Anthony, Minnesota policeman, who was charged but subsequently acquitted. One day after Alton Sterling was killed by Baton Rouge, Louisiana police officers, no charges were ever brought. I remember walking into the physician workroom at the end of that long week, quiet, trying to hold it together avoiding eye contact, not sure if I wanted to talk to my white colleagues that day. I was relatively new on staff. We were associates, not friends. And I wasn't sure what they were going to ask of me that day. I knew my colleagues well enough to know that they too would have heavy hearts. However, I also knew how easily black people's needs fade into the background when white people are in their feelings. I teach about racism and health, but I did not want to be, and to their credit, they did not ask me to be, their teacher or counselor that day. During the evening of the day after George Floyd's death, I texted my friend, who, liked me, as a new mom and Minneapolis resident. We had gone on a socially distant walk with our toddlers to the extent that is possible the day before. Her picture of our not-yet-two-year-olds hugging in their matching pink pants was the last message in the text chain. I am so tired and sad, I wrote to her. Our children are so beautiful, and they are brown in America. My friend is not black, but she is brown. And black and brown mothers have concerns that white mothers do not. We stand watch over our children as this world tries to deny their beauty thwart their genius, dim their light, and too quickly take their innocence. We know the day will soon come when we will have to dry their tears and remind them that they are everything. We hold them tight because we know there will be other days when we will not be there to comfort them. When George Floyd called out Mama as he died, I heard my own child's voice in his. His call for mama sounded like her call for me when she is scared in the middle of the night and yet knows, even in the darkness, I am there. Because I am the mother of a toddler, I am always exhausted. Most nights I am asleep by 9.30 p.m. But that night I could not turn off my brain. I was still awake at 10.45 and at midnight and at 2 a.m., We know how important sleep is for health, yet a growing literature shows that racism keeps black people up at night. Blacks sleep fewer hours and experience more sleep disruptions than whites. For many of the reasons that kept me awake, that night was filled with the noise of helicopters and sirens. Though I tried to still my mind, I replayed Mr. Floyd's death over and over again. His murder was the worst type of everyday racism. Though the phrase typically refers to the ordinary experiences of unfair treatment to which Black people are routinely subjected, such as disrespect, given the regularity with which Black people are killed by the police, everyday racism seems a fitting description. In whatever form or intensity, chronic exposure to interpersonal racism is maddening. If you are like me, you are angry that it happened again, that you didn't expect it when you should have, and that the perpetrator is unlikely to be held accountable and probably went about their day unbothered, with no, though sometimes with full, awareness of what they had done, and here you are, still thinking about it. I decided to write that night as a means to process and hopefully quiet my thoughts. Rebroadcasts of news programs played in the background. The hosts all commented on the city's action to swiftly fire the four policemen. I was not sure if I detected one commentator insinuate undue haste. I sighed. Then they showed the protests and a press conference with the mayor. Being black should not be a death sentence. And the attorney general, this is a national historic problem. People are raged by it, they're sick of it, and they want government to be responsive. Maybe this time it will be different. Hope feels foolish and necessary at the same time. In the past, calls to eliminate racism have largely gone unanswered. Many organizations, including the Minneapolis Police Department, have implemented implicit bias training, often as one-off sessions despite the research that shows that interventions to reduce implicit bias generally have only short-term effects and are unlikely to lead to behavior change. The effects of these trainings are small because anti-Black racial bias is deep-seated in our brains and deeply rooted in the fabric of America. Anti-Black racial bias and animus persists because dominant American culture persistently denigrates Black people even as it has made room to heroize a few black individuals. Too many whites fail to interact with blacks as equals. Rather, they keep black people at a distance, support policies that reproduce the racial status quo, and elect people who clearly act against black interests. I commend leaders who have used implicit bias trainings to start new conversations about racism in their organizations. However, I, like many others, fear their promulgation. There is a real risk that organizational leaders will stop there. Confusing an opening act for the main event and the hard work of eliminating systemic racism will not get done. In her consummate June 5th tweet, writer Lisa Coe noted, the revolution will not be diversity and inclusion trainings. I'd add implicit bias trainings to that list we cannot simply tinker around the edges as these trainings often do. Instead, we must radically restructure society. As we take back power from the police, we must upend other systems as well. As a physician, I know that includes healthcare. Thus far, in our efforts to eliminate racial disparities in patient access, experience, and outcomes, we too have been tinkering around the edges. Incrementalism or healthcare as usual is harmful to millions of Black people whose symptoms are not taken seriously, who struggle against more powerful clinicians, researchers, and policymakers who construct their cultures and bodies as problems, whose access to care hinges on their employment in a country that systematically undereducates and therefore underemploys Black people and who develop chronic conditions because they live in a racialized society and therefore have greater exposure to morbidity-inducing environments. As a country, we now face a choice. Substantively address racism head-on or, at our peril, discourage anti-racism discourse and action. Healthcare leaders have similar choices. Downplay calls to change the status quo. Or address the ways in which racism inhibits our ability to achieve the triple aim to optimize the experience of care, improve population health, and reduce costs. If we are serious about the triple aim, we must tackle the ways in which racism negatively impacts mental and physical well being, increases costs, impedes quality, and undermines population health goals. Many health systems, especially safety net systems and clinics, attempt to bridge the gaps that structural racism creates. However, even biomedicine's more holistic, biopsychosocial explanatory models often fail to account for racism's impact. Furthermore, consider the quadruple aim, which adds the goal of improving the experience of providing care. Black providers, nurses and staff, and other members of racialized minority groups often face a number of race-related stressors, coming from individuals, including patients, the institutions in which they work, as discussions about the minority tax demonstrate, and living while Black in the broader culture. While we must develop systems to detect and address bias at the point of care, it is more important to change the conditions that cut Black lives short. We must push for anti-poverty policies, such as universal health care, that would go a long way to reduce the economic ramifications of systemic racism. And we must seriously consider, rather than summarily dismiss reparations as a means to deal with racially stratified social determinants of health. We are well positioned today to re-articulate our commitment to optimal health for all, and to reimagine healthcare operations and clinical teams so that others have less reason to doubt us. Leaders in clinical medicine, research and medical education can choose to powerfully champion change or they can stand in the way. Like defunding the police, divesting from our current system will generate fear and discomfort, but this is what we must do if Black lives really matter. A Health
0: Podacy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vivalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vivalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.